I want to say thank you to David for leading us in worship. Um, it's been, as many of you will be aware, uh, a pretty busy day and not the easiest of Lord's days. And DP doing that tonight has been a real help to me. So David, thank you very much. And I also want to thank Natalie for stepping in tonight and playing for us and uh, Sarah and, and Karen and Kirsty for leading us in our praise of God. And that was a beautiful song to sing and such an appropriate one as we fix our eyes on Jesus and as we turn to God's word together now. So let me begin with a question tonight. And it may seem like a strange question to ask on a Sunday evening here in worship in Connor, but I'll ask it anyway. Do you pray? I'm not asking you to put your hand up or put you under pressure in that way or answer out aloud, but a serious question. Do you pray? And you might think that a strange question given that this is the evening service and we associate our evening worship with if you like, the, the spiritual SAS of a congregation, the most committed people come out and, and they show their commitment by their presence here a second time on the Lord's Day. And I'm not being cynical about that, by the way. I'm so glad that you do come along. And it's great to have you here as we meet together in the name of Jesus tonight. But it's not such a strange question to ask when you consider some of the surveys that have been carried out within evangelical churches in the United States over the last number of years. And some of the answers that are given in those surveys have caused alarm, one of them being the number of people who admit it that they barely ever pray, and yet they would have professed some kind of faith in the Lord Jesus. It's not a stupid question. And when you think about it, it is an incredibly important question. Because when we look at the great prayers of the Bible, if we think about the prayers that are prayed by people like Abraham, Nehemiah, Daniel, the prayers of the Lord Jesus Himself, the prayers of the early church, we always get to see that biblical prayer is much more than just simply asking the Lord for stuff. As we said even this morning, and as I say so often here, prayer is much more about relationship than request. And so prayer is both a means of developing and an indication of the health of our relationship with the Lord. If you want to describe it like this, it is an indicator of our spiritual health. You know those flow charts where you answer a question and, and depending on yes or no decides where you go? So here's the next one. If you answer yes to that first question, then the extension is, do you pray for other believers? And again, you might think, well, that's strange to ask that. Of course I would, but it is not a strange question because all too often prayer can become about me, myself, and I. And again, we need to see the biblical example that is set for us, that within God's covenant community, there is a pattern of prayer that involve people remembering God's people 
as a whole, not just them as the individual. Maybe the most notable example of this is the way that Nehemiah prays, and we have been considering Nehemiah's great prayer in Nehemiah chapter 1 over the course of this week in our daily devotional during our New Year prayer week. But let me, let me remind you of Nehemiah 1 verse 6, where we hear from Nehemiah, I now pray day and night before you for the people of Israel, your servants. Not a case of, Lord, bless me, Lord, help me. So, prayer should involve remembering your fellow believers before the Lord. Well, again, if we return to our little flow charter diagram, if you answer yes, if you take the why for that one, the final question, well, what then do you pray for other believers? Do you pray for their good health? Do you pray for guidance at times of decision? Do you seek their prosperity and their success in business or in the workplace? Do you pray about their relationships with others? And all of these to varying extents are good and important things to pray about, but they are not the primary thing you should bring before the Lord as you pray for your brothers and sisters in Christ. So, tonight for a few moments, we as we turn to God's Word, are going to seek to learn to pray the Paul way. We're going to discover what it is that he asks of the Lord for other believers. And what you'll see this evening is that Paul prays that other Christians may get to know the Lord better, that they will increase in their knowledge of what the Lord has done for them in Christ, that they'll discover more and more the blessings that they have in the Lord Jesus. Now, we have considered this prayer of Paul before in a series that I did in the book of Ephesians when I first arrived here during our midweek back in 2017. But I want us for a few moments tonight to look at this passage specifically and, and what Paul writes here is, of course, written in the light of what he has already said in this chapter and in this letter to the Ephesian believers. So, for us tonight, the, the crucial phrase perhaps is in verse 15, where he says, for this reason. And it's one of those bridging phrases. What Paul is effectively saying is, what I am about to say is because of what I have already said. So, let's quickly look at what Paul has already said to the Ephesian church. And what he's already said in chapter 1 could be a summary of this whole letter. It could be summarized like this, all we need is Jesus. That is the great overriding message of the letter to the Ephesians. Jesus is enough. Let's quickly look at what he says or what he said so far. If you look at the first part of chapter 1, Paul explains there that as believers, we have been chosen in Christ. If you look at verse 4, he says, for he, that is God the Father, chose us 
in him, that is Jesus, before the creation of the world. And hearing and understanding that this evening gives those of us who are believers in Christ great comfort because it is tough taking our stand for the Lord in our society and in our time, just as it was really tough for these Christians that Paul was writing to in the early church to take their stand for the Lord and to live distinctively for Jesus. This is also a truth that should give us great confidence. And so often, I meet Christians who lack that confidence. They lack what the Bible describes as assurance. There is a great security in knowing that in God's plan, we have been chosen, that it is God who in His grace has chosen us. It is not a case of us choosing Him. And therefore, it doesn't depend on our performance or our decision. And I've illustrated this idea before by thinking back to, to when my children were the age of some of our children here tonight. And when I would have been walking with one of my children in a shopping center, whether right at the beginning that was the Abbey Center or Buttercrane or Rushmere, and you see the progression all the way through our life, if I was walking through that shopping center, if I held out my hand and relied upon my child keeping hold of me, there was no security in that. But when I took my child's hand in mine, in that there is great security. And believer in Christ, you are chosen in Christ. But Paul continues in the early part of chapter 1, he tells us that we have been rescued in Christ. Verse 7, in Him, that is Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. It's a reminder that our salvation and our right standing with God is all down to Christ and what He has done. It is not about us and what we seek to do. And that is a crucial truth. In fact, it's a truth, and this may sound counterintuitive, but it is a truth that liberates us to serve the Lord all the more. Because then we are serving the Lord from a good place. It is a grateful response as we consider what God has done for us. It's not a panicky service. Oh, I must do enough. I must somehow get on the right side of God. And it's a truth that keeps people from pride. As my mom would say, if people hears me and who's like me, it keeps us from that philosophy and that approach to life. But Paul tells us one other thing in the early part of chapter 1 that's of note tonight as we then consider this prayer, and that is that we who are believers have been adopted in Christ. And that is a, a transforming truth if we were to truly grasp it and fully grasp it. Verse 5, Paul says that God predestined us to be adopted as His sons through Jesus Christ. And if we think about this, what it means is that we have not only been brought near to God in Christ uh, in terms of friendship, 
we have been brought into sonship. And it's all about Jesus. It is through Him that we have been accepted by God. It is through Him that we have been adopted into the family. And that has great implications for us, again, when it comes to our assurance. It's a bit like those Charles Dickens novels that are dramatized on TV around this time of the year. Over Christmas, maybe you watched one of those movies or TV series that are based on a Dickensian novel. And in them, you see the orphaned and the homeless child. But think about it like this. If you were orphaned and homeless, if someone took you into their home and they said to you, you're welcome to stay here and to work for me, and we'll keep it on to review, we'll check again in six months how you're doing, and then again in a year. Well, that would be one thing, and there would be maybe a measure of security and comfort in that. But if someone adopts you as their child, and if they say to you, you are now my son, you are now my daughter, everything that I have is yours, well, that's a whole different level. It is truly amazing. And in the light of all of this, in the light of these truths, Paul prays for the believers. Remember, these are believers that Paul saw converted during his time of ministry in Ephesus. And he's praying now that they would grow in their knowledge of what God has done for them in Christ. So quickly then, let's take a, a closer look at what it is that Paul prays. And first of all, he prays, or he gives thanks for what God has done in their lives. Look again at verses 15 and 16. He says, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And there's actually something that is immediately important and interesting to see here. That as Paul writes to this congregation in Ephesus, just like all of the other churches that he was addressing, these were places that Paul had once worked in. Not places that he was currently ministering in. If I think back to my ministry to date, I've spent time in White Abbey, in First Ruth Ryland, in Waringstown. And even though I've moved on from those places, it doesn't mean that I stop being interested in what's going on there, at times even concerned about what's going on there. And at times I still get to hear what is going on. And so Paul, from a distance, received encouraging reports. He gives thanks for two particular things about the Ephesian believers. First of all, their faith in Christ, because it must have been so difficult, given everything that we know about Ephesus, for these believers to keep on trusting in Jesus in what was such a, a hostile pagan setting. And it was a real indication of the Holy Spirit's work in their lives. It wasn't just something manufactured by these people themselves. And then Paul also gives thanks for their love for each other, a love that is displayed in the life of that church 
and which then shows the difference that Christ brings to lives given the way that they cared for one another. And tonight, how great it would be if we were recognized for these things in Connor. If people looked on from the outside and they noted our faith in Christ and our love for one another in Jesus. And yet, the thing that I want you to see is that Ephesus, like all of the other congregations that Paul wrote to, was not a perfect place. This was not a perfect church. Indeed, there is no such thing. It reminds us of the story that I've told you before about Spurgeon. And Spurgeon had these groupies, these people who followed him about wherever he was speaking and therefore had no commitment to their local church. And it increasingly irritated Spurgeon to know that that was the case. And one of these adoring fans, a fangirl, you would probably describe her these days, approached Spurgeon after a service one night, and she said, Mr. Spurgeon, I've been looking for the perfect church, and I was wondering if you could help me and direct me to where I could find that congregation. And he said, Madam, I can't, but please assure me of one thing. If you find it, please don't join it. There is no such thing as the perfect church. And indeed, in this letter later on in chapter 4, if you turn to that chapter, verse 14 implies the presence of false doctrine. Then right towards the end of the letter or the end of that chapter, in verses 31 and 32, the Ephesians are urged to lo love each other even more deeply. But Paul is able to give thanks to God for the good he sees in this church. And people, I want you to hear that again tonight. And I want us before God to reflect on this. Paul is able to give thanks to God for the good he sees in this church. Now, how about us? Because I'll tell you, some of the people, thankfully not many, but some of the people that I meet here in Connor, some of the people that I visit, some of the people who seek me out, are not nearly thankful enough for their fellow believers. And they can lose sight of the good that goes on here. Is this a perfect church? No way. I'm the minister here, and I can tell you, it is not. But we should give thanks to God for the important features that are in place here. The faith of many of God's people in Christ, the love that we have for each other, a love that is demonstrated in all kinds of ways, even here this afternoon, in a practical way. And yes, we are right to challenge, to, to debate, to contend for the truth, to encourage our fellow believers to up their game, but we must not lose sight of the good and the blessing and the work of the Lord in this place. For some people, when it comes to Connor, the glass is half empty. In fact, for 
one or two, the glass has dropped on the floor and they've stepped on the splinters in their bare feet. Paul gives thanks to God for what he sees going on in this church. And then number two, he prays that they will, be, they will be given a better knowledge of Christ. Verse 17, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. So that you may know Him better. And knowing Christ is one of the New Testament's ways of describing saving faith. If we think about the words of Jesus in John's gospel, in John 17 verse 3, He says, now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. We can say that those who know Christ have eternal life. But what does knowing Christ actually involve? Well, if we think about our our new king, some people might study his life. They might even get to meet him. But could it be said that they really know him? Because to truly know someone, it must be a two-way thing. There must be mutual knowledge and a mutual exchange. In fact, the word that Paul uses in the Greek here for know comes from a Hebrew word for know that we read in Genesis chapter 4 verse 1. This runs even deeper. In Genesis 4 verse 1, it talks about Adam and Eve, and it says, Adam knew Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain. So, we understand clearly because of the result of that, the sense in which Adam knew Eve. So, there is a a level of spiritual intimacy here in what Paul is saying. The believers that Paul was writing to, they knew Christ in a saving way. But Paul is praying that they will know Him better. In the Greek, it's talking in that particular moment about a real, deep, full knowledge. Now, how can we and our fellow believers know Christ in this way? What is it that we should be praying for? Well, this is ultimately a ministry of God's Holy Spirit, who is described by Paul as the spirit of wisdom and revelation. And I want to challenge us tonight because I'm not actually sure that this is the knowledge that we most crave within this church. I'm not sure that it is the knowledge that we as believers most desire for ourselves and pray for others. For us today, very often, the knowledge that we most desire is self-awareness. I just need to know myself. We hear people say that. Or maybe we desire a knowledge of each other. If only there was a better sense of fellowship in this place, 
that would make this church far better. I hear people tell me that. Or we have a desire for knowledge of the people around us. Again, people tell me that's what's wrong with Connor. Oh, we should be more effective as a church if we just got to know our community and the needs of our community, then we would be effective in reaching people for Christ. And indeed, there may be elements of truth in all of those things, and they have their place. But as Paul wrote to a growing, loving church, these types of knowledge weren't the types of knowledge that he identified as being most important. What was needed, what ought to be prayed for, was a deeper knowledge of Christ. And so, will you pray that God's Holy Spirit will be at work in your life and in the lives of your fellow believers and in the life of this fellowship in the year 2023, deepening our knowledge of Christ? But then one final thing that Paul prays for these believers, he prays that they will have better spiritual vision. I know that I need to get my eyes checked. I've been putting it off for ages, but the other day I was doing something at home. I was actually trying to, to change a battery and a watch, and I was trying to read what it said on the battery, and I had various glasses on and everything else, and I thought, Philip, you really, really need your eyes checked. But Paul also prays that these believers will be given improved vision, spiritual vision. We have at times been singing that song, Open the Eyes of My Heart, Lord, and they are words based on Paul's words here. Look again at verses 18 and 19. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. What is it that Paul prays that these believers will see more clearly? Well, he prays, first of all, that they will see more clearly the hope that they have in Christ. Verse 18, he wants them to have a better vision of the hope to which He has called you. And we know that hope is so badly needed in people's lives. We meet with people each day, and we think of our own lives and our own families. He then prays that they will have a better vision. They will be able to see more clearly God's riches. Again, verse 18, He prays that their eyes will be opened to the riches of God's glorious inheritance. Now, what does that mean? Well, you see, the thing is, we who belong to God in Christ, we are God's riches. So, Paul is praying that these believers will be able to see more clearly how precious they are to God, the identity that they have in Christ. And then, finally, he prays that they will be able to see more clearly the power of God that is at work in their lives. Look again at verses 19 to 21, and what it is that Paul prays 
the believers will see more clearly. Verse 19, and His incomparably great power for us who believe, that power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And the thing to note there, that the very power that raised Jesus from the dead can and will be at work in the lives of His people. That is amazing. When we feel inadequate to the task, when we are acutely aware of our weakness, to hear of this biblical truth tonight is an astounding thing. Folks, do you pray? And if so, do you pray for other believers? And if you do, what do you pray for your fellow believers in Christ? Give thanks to God for them. Pray that they will have a greater knowledge of Jesus and pray that they will have a greater vision of God and what He has done for us. So let's pray together now. Heavenly Father, I pray this evening for my brothers and sisters in Christ gathered here. I thank You for them. I thank You for Your work of grace in their lives. And I pray that they will grow in their knowledge of their Savior and Lord Jesus in this coming year. I pray that by the work of your Holy Spirit, you would grant them a greater vision of you and what you have done for us and continue to do for us in Christ by the power of your Holy Spirit. And all of this we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen.